Welcome to Managing Marketing and today I'm sitting in the RACV Club in Melbourne in the billiards room. You can probably hear them playing in the background and I get an opportunity to sit down and have a chat with the new Head of Media at Trinity P3 and a long-term friend of mine, Mark McCraith. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Darren. Good to see you in Melbourne. Well, look, uh, you know, I grew up here and, uh, and we've known each other for quite a few years. but. Uh, We've spent some time going around uh, Melbourne, having a chat to the media owners and certainly some of the advertisers. And I'm really interested because in those conversations, you brought to that a perspective from both a marketer's perspective, which you've been, and also an agency, media agency's perspective. And I really want to focus, you know, getting an understanding from you having been in that role what is a great relationship to have with the media owners? Because it's not transactional, is it? No, it's um, beyond that. So the best relationship with the media owner are ones that are built on trust. Uh, you honour your word that you're going to give them money or the transaction's going to occur and you innovate and you want to test them with ideas because media owners like being tested and like coming up with new innovations that they would on-sell to their other clients in future years. And the best relationships and dealings with, I've had with media owners are built on trust and built on innovation and you're trying to break new ground. Well, that's one of the things I really noticed was that, first of all, there was a really um, you know, close relationship between you and the media owners. And, you know, we're talking about senior people, CEOs and, and, and national sales directors and the like, right? There was a level of trust and, and understanding. But... What I really enjoyed was the excitement in their voice when they were talking about projects and ways that they really helped their clients and their clients being agencies and advertisers um, achieve their results. You know, they really got genuinely excited about their contribution to driving performance. Oh, well, it's not about cost per thousand cost per acquisition. It's about innovation. I remember when I was at Jeep, we sponsored the the London Olympics and that inspired the car dealer network to say Jeep is really serious. I couldn't have done it without the help of Channel 9 at the time but that really inspired the dealer network, the CEO of Jeep to get all these dealers engaged to say you guys are going to make history for us mm -hmm. as car dealers because we're going to be seeing the Olympics and I, I remember um, they were all so excited, the car dealers, when we told them about it, we bought the Olympics and I thought Oh, that's good. Now, it wasn't purely based on costs. It was about building a brand and building a um, uh, uh, brand to the point where it was a leader in the market perceptually. So, you know, as you said before, you know, the media owners love the opportunity to innovate and do something new for, for their clients, right? I did notice in a lot of the conversations that from a media owner's perspective, they preferred the relationships where they got more access or they worked directly with the advertisers than through an agency or even worse, not through an agency, but the agency was acting almost like a wall between them and the clients. And I remember one of them, I can't remember which uh, media owner said, you know, not you, Mark, you always brought your clients along to the party. 
But yeah, what what do you think drives that, or do you think that's right? That you know the relationship should be the agency should be fostering a direct relationship with the client. Well, I always took the view that um, a client and an agency are in partnership together, as you are in partnership with the media owner, and it's best to bring um, everyone together. I've found that uh, the client tells the media owner something a different story than sometimes they're put in the brief or they're marketing managers put in the brief. And it's really good to get the CEO of the client in front of the CEO of the, of the media vendor so they can put a name to a face when something goes wrong. They can help when something's needed. And I remember like I took um, a number of my clients to Maxis to meet the media owners and they accelerated their spending with that person or that vendor because they, the media owner was ringing them up, how sales going. They, the media wants, they want to your, your client to succeed because it's in their interest because mm. you're going to come back and repeat purchase. It's what, what, so, why do you think? What do you think drives a mindset amongst some agencies, or even some people in agencies, that somehow their job is to be the intermediary between the two and not the partner, not the facilitator of those relationships? I, I think it's some cultures, uh, some agencies are different. Um, some think that they know it all um, and they can be the client's best friend, uh, be, the best knowledge and solution. I don't know. I, I'm not that smart to know everything, but. Clearly, if you've got smart people in the room with the media owner, the client, ideas will start popping out. And in, and the client will say, yes, I can do that, or I can do that. So little things like, you know, remember, I remember when I had, had uh, the craft business um, years ago, Joe Walter Thompson, he used to take movie tickets to the um, CEO, because, the CMO, because she had young kids. Mm. And that was just appreciative. And yep. the cinema company one day might have got a booking, but not straight away. But she appreciated that, you know, Disney on Ice or things like that. So Well, there was also a way for the marketer to experience the medium. Because, yes. you know, marketers, uh, they, like the, all of us, you know, it's a busy existence. You've got a busy life. You know, you probably are not necessarily consuming as much media mm. as the average person is mm. because, you know, your work-life balance is hopelessly out of balance. Well, I remember with Jeep and Fiat and Alpha particularly, the, the dealers' wives are part of the business. Oh, they're certainly important decision-makers. So when they see your advertising all the time, they tell their husband or, or wives or whatever... Their partners. Um, partners, yeah. that they're seeing the ads. I saw another Jeep ad, I saw another Fiat. So that reinforces what you're doing as a media buyer as the agency and as the client. And I had so many um, wives of dealers come and say, gee, I love your new ad. I said, great, have you seen it? Oh, heaps. It's perception management. And through, um, I, I remember I sponsored 60 Minutes and the, the dealers say, what, when should I look out? Just watch 60 Minutes on Sunday. That's your see. You'll see there. So it was a, like a landmark of the dealership on High Street, um, uh, Strathfield Road, saying, I'm, I'm here, here's my $4 million complex. That was the same with what strategy we use for um, TV and sponsorships, why we did that. Well, I think, um, you know, everyone gets a better understanding of what 
the client's trying to achieve, when you really get an opportunity to at least get under their skin, if not into their business. So I can only imagine for the media owners, the sales team, the agency team, the more you're exposed to that, the better it is. Yeah, totally. Like um, dealer, like a car dealer today, he's got seven or eight franchises. He's got time to read all of the deals. So above the line, communication is really important. Do you think it's also a measure of the level of transparency or trust that an agency feels comfortable introducing their client to the media owners? Because I have heard some agencies say to me, oh, look, if I take the client to meet the uh, the media owners, the sales team, they're just going to go around me to the client and, you know, undermine me or they're going to be pitching stuff to the client and hassling the client all the time. But in actual fact, what they're trying to do is control the relationship. Yes, I I took the opposite view where I used to say to the client, come and meet such and such. We're going to have a... A coffee or a lunch or a beer after work and I'll, I'd pay um, yeah. deliberately so I wasn't the media owner always having to and the media owners used to look at me strange like why are you paying he said because I'm transparent so one of the things is it's always good to build a relationship with the client and the, uh, and the media owner because sometimes they they need a favor like Recently in the UK, they ran out of chicken. So you can imagine what yeah. that phone call would have been. Hey, I've run out of chicken. I need KFC, need to get off TV or off print or whatever they're doing. Okay. So taking that example and extrapolating it forward, you know, a lot of uh, time is spent by procurement teams, for instance, trying to get the lowest possible cost. You know, driving CPMs down, drive, you know, trying to get the best deal possible. As what you're saying is that you could actually get better value if you're not just treating the relationship as a cost-commodity relationship, that it is actually a partnership where there's quid pro quos on both sides. Yes, um, I remember a famous cosmetics company, right name Mitch, and uh, it was known to drive the cost down. Now, I'm a World War II fan. And uh, I'm watching the History Channel and a repeat on Channel 7 late at night. And here's this beautiful ad with a woman putting on makeup in something about Hitler. In a World War II show about Hitler, now, yeah. So the con- I'm sure there was a lot of women uh, watching that I'm show. sure oh, there is. targeting um, so the con- men that like to dress in drag. <laughs> <laughs> the context is just as important as the low cost. Now... Media vendors, media owners will, will look after most people if you're honest and trade with them. If you're going to get low cost to drive them into the ground, you'll be put anywhere that meets the low cost mm. factor, which means you can you can have a scattergun approach, which is defeated the whole purpose. Of what or you're, you're going to get all the inventory that they can't sell to anyone else. Yes, <laughs> like late night TV or midnight to dawn. But in actual fact, the real value, and especially in the, you know, like television, radio, and print, is um, the fact that they have content that they produce themselves that they can do things with. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. That is money can't buy as far as brand exposure, awareness, and even customer um, customer engagement. Oh, well... Um if I've been watching, I've been watching Married at First Sight lately, so Peroni features heavily in that, but they're not a sponsor. Yeah. So it's probably all the front bar with three guys are having a beer. 
Yeah. It's clearly good examples good. of product placement, uh, even built into the sets. Yes, and, yeah. and it's not about the cost you pay for that. It's about the impact you have, mm. and the impact is far greater. Well, it's not a transactional could... thing, is no. it? Because you could only do that by building relationships. Yes. And and really working out the contribution that adds to the uh, viewer or the the consumer's experience. Yeah. But also adds value for both the producer, the brand, and the um, media. Yes. Well, if you look at what Bunnings do with um, their magazine, Better Homes and Gardens, what a natural the show. Yeah. The show is about homes, gardening, Friday nights. Yeah. <laughs> when do you go shopping? Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Perfect example. Yeah, and that's not something you can put on a media plan and work out a cost per thousand on, is it? Well, you can work at the cost, but you've got to evaluate what is the overall impact is that coming to the business. Mm. Now, I'm sure that if you ask someone at Seven or Bunnings, they'd say it's delivering. Yeah. Well, clearly they've been doing it for quite a few years. Yes, so they have. I can't imagine a, a switched-on organisation like Bunnings continue to support something that's not putting money in the till. Yes, exactly. So um, the other area is, and, and I touched on it there before, like media these days or media providers really fit into two categories, don't they? There are those that actually produce content. You know, and I mentioned radio, um, uh, television, uh, print, you know, uh, or whether it's digital print or, or traditional print. And then there's the media aggregators who really just take everyone else's content and are, are selling advertising in that space, you know, and in that we're talking the, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the, the Googles. The relationship must be quite different between the media providers that own and produce content and those that are really just aggregating everyone else's content. Is it or is it the same? Uh, it's different because the, the owners are curators, trusted environments, like before we're having copy and read in the Herald Sun. Um, are we going to go online to leave the Daily Mail? It's the same as the Herald Sun. Um, the aggregators are, are made for the cost minimisation target market. Yeah. The, the primary media channel source of it is curating the content that you want to watch. And so there's a big cost involved in curating. Exactly, that. exactly. So you know, everyone's saying uh, "Marry with First Sight" or the 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 Age or the Sydney Morning Herald, or the Daily Telegraph, or the Australian are brilliant sources of information mm. for their for their dots desired audiences, and they cost. They have to uh, employ it, print it, make it whatever, and here's someone else picking it up and just putting a different word on it or changing it and trying to sell off that is that primary media target. It's, a, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? Because, you know, because the aggregators are not actually paying for the content, they're literally lifting it. Well, it and I think the example I shared with you, um, uh, Paul McIntyre yes. said to me, you know, it would be like... The ABC Four Corners show, which runs for 45 minutes, imagine if a commercial station lifted that, sold 15 minutes of advertising, ran the same Four Corners show with 15 minutes of ads sprinkled through it and kept all the money themselves. That's pretty much what Facebook and Google are doing, isn't well, it? Well, when you told me that story, I thought, gee, they, they would like to do that. 
the commercial stations or Foxtel or something. Or someone would like to do that. And uh, and could you imagine the outcry? Well, the cost would be negligible to run the ads. Of course. So no, it'd be all profit. It'd be all profit. So this is what I still can't believe that Facebook comes out and says, "Sorry, we've got all these fraud users," and the share price went up. Yeah, what, because what, almost a billion people were uh, fake users. So I fake th- accounts. I think that's it's got to come around to people investing investing in trusted, newsworthy environments primarily because. Yeah, but you said a minute ago, you know, those aggregators offer a very low cost per thousand, low cost per thousand eyeball environment. You know, you can literally buy a thousand impressions much cheaper on Facebook or Google or YouTube than you can with any of the traditional media. But you lose control. You lose control over where you are in the ecosystem. So you look at YouTube and everyone's saying, I'm pulling off YouTube because it's got this or that or whatever reason why they want it. Why are they still on it? Mm. Because it's cheap, but they're pulling off every now and again because they're frightened about what's going to uncover. Like, yeah. I think Sky News ran uh, Andrew Bolt's show the other night when, when George Pell was sentenced at free because they were worried about backlash from advertisers appearing in the show. That's commercial sense yeah. to do that. Mm. So aggregators are a, a necessary evil for agencies because they help them deliver their promises. Well, it's certainly a, a way of filling in the gaps, isn't yes. it? But what about when we move to a world? Because you know, I read the other day that uh, uh, digital display or digital advertising in the US has outstripped traditional media channels. So it's not about filling in the gaps anymore. It is the main game. You know, yes, it where is. Does it, where does that leave traditional media who have the role of paying for the content, building a uh, an audience, building a community that uh, trust them and, and uh, engage with their media? I think it's quite interesting. I saw a similar chart where the big the fan group, the Facebook, Amazon, um, Google, uh, Google, are spending more money on TV, traditional advertising, for their business. So traditional media has its place. And, like, you can work out all the comparisons between if you spent $5 million on digital versus $5 million on a Super Bowl ad, which is going to have the biggest impact. I think the Super Bowl ad might. Well, after that Cambridge Analytica, yeah. uh, it was ironic that Facebook basically did advertising out of home Print. Uh, and print. Yes. You know, the two media that everyone says is dying, well, and not out of home, but yeah. print. Yeah. Out of home is booming. Out of home I mean, is booming. Out of home is unbelievable. And, and the technology innovations with digital um, serving, you know, digital displays are unbelievable. But if you look at the KFC example, when I was in London last year, this time, when KFC ran chicken, they apologised for the print ad. Yeah. Facebook apologised with the print ad. So you've got to have the starting of the stimulus to then play off into the digital channel. There's an integrity about doing something in print. It's like a letter versus mm. an email. Yeah. A hard copy. You've written it, you letter to you. So it's that same tactile experience that you need one stage or another. I mean, always remember when I started JMT, I said, television has sight, sound, emotion, emo- emotion and emotion. Yeah. Now, not many media have four things. 
Yep. So it still holds true to me. And I've been, I've been accused of uh, loving TV, but I know it works. I know it works from when I worked at Fair Chrysler. So. And, that, and that's the point, though. Oh, sorry, you just picked up yeah. when you were working at Fair Chrysler. You weren't just investing in television because it was television. You were actually measuring the performance of that investment in changing behaviour to get people to either go to the website or do something we off had, the back of it. We had a very sophisticated model and through, through it, so it's all very well having a dashboard, but what insights to get out of the dashboard? So we could work out for every 100 uh, UVs, we sell 1.2 Jeeps. Yeah. Uh, we started with Fiat. We sold for every 100.4 of a Fiat. Now, I know they're small, but half a car is not a full car. We got up to 0.8, and that's where we thought the ceiling was. We got it a one that was good. But we had a benchmark where Jeep was overachieving, and we lifted the high type with the other two. So from that, you can vent that navigated through just simple Google Analytics, all our our leakages, we, we follow up on leads with our dealers to get them following up on the leads so if someone answers the a request, uh, we lowered the cost per unit sold. Yeah, but look, Mark, the reason I bring it up is a lot of consumer packaged goods marketers say to me, oh, well, you know, um, we, we spend this money on advertising and then it's sold through retailers and we really have no idea what the direct impact is. but. It's a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? Because if you think it through, there's ways of knowing what your, um, what your impact to your investments should be doing. Uh, look, I, I've had some indirect dealings with people like, uh, with package goods people yeah. uh, through Chemist Warehouse. Yeah. Now, I, I get it. If I go to Chemist Warehouse and I give you 120 grand, my product will be sold in the store in the, in the, in the two weeks. I'll get mentioned in their advertising, great. Happy days. Mm. We're going to the sale and exposure. And they take up the risks. They're buying it. Mind you, if it doesn't sell, I've got a problem next time. So I have to continually uh, reinvest in my brand, make sure it's top of mind. So I've seen it both ways when it works and uh, from retail, from push and pull. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another um, interesting thing is in the conversations we've had over the last few days is that... Um, the media owners do feel the pain of the media agencies, don't they? There is quite a close relationship there. It's not total um, buyer-seller, is it? No, the, the media owners feel the pain because they're struggling to meet their budgets every year and they incentivise the agencies to spend more money with them. Right. So they know that the agencies are struggling. Yes. Except that the agencies, the general trend is to move more and more advertising budget into digital channels, which is why we're seeing digital channels increase all the time. Yes, because probably there is more um, incentive to do it for right. the agencies. So this is all those you know hidden, um, uh, non-disclosed uh, yes. arrangements that yes. are happening in the background. Yes, but it happens with all media. Right. But the scale... The scale the, is bigger with digital now. Yeah, and, and that's also because going back to what we were talking about before, is it also because the margins on digital are much more flexible? Yes, they are. So I, if you look at all the tech fees, compliance fees, ad-serving fees, there's a whole lot of mystery about yeah. the real cost of those fees. And 
I think there's a new fee invented every year mm. or terminology that someone comes up with. <laughs> Which is just another uh, fee. Take, yeah, a fee to take some more out so, of it. So, you know, like you can, you can ask for non-disclosure deals. Most agencies do offer, offer them. Because um, what is the number? It's... Um uh, out of every dollar, about thirty cents gets the publisher, or twenty percent. Yeah, thirty cents gets 30 seen. Cent. Yeah, that's the um, information. But, but traditional media is not like that at all because it's basically going to the person that provides the ninety media. cents. Yeah, because it's all ten percent commission. Now, if they choose to incentivise an agency group, they might do that at the ninety. Yeah, not the thirty. So it might be the you know eighty percent gets to the yes publisher. So, but 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 the decline of traditional media versus digital, eroding them, their pool is getting smaller. So traditional media has to fight back some way. Having said that, if, when we talk about traditional media, they're all also doing digital media because yes. you know, every TV network has now got catch-up TV or, or download or streaming TV. Every print publisher has got a digital version. Even radio has digital radio that you can do catch up or play on demand and things like that. So they're really, that, that distinction of just pure play traditional and pure play digital doesn't exist, does it? No, and that's where the, um, if I call it traditional media, have been clever because they've had to scale up in that area to maximise their, their capabilities to fight back against digital media and become part of the ecosystem. Now, you've also had some regional roles. Uh, I think it was at your time at Mindshare with yes. Ford. Yes. You worked across the region. Yes. Um, one of the things we often get, especially from procurement people overseas that come and run a media tender in Australia, is they can't understand why media is so expensive in the Australian market compared to, say, the US or even Europe. You know that they they talk about cost per thousand being ridiculously high here, and uh, do you have any insight into that or some clarity? Well, to to quote Paul Keating, you can be queen of the screens or prince of prints. So we've had a closed environment for a long time. We haven't had the competition open up. So until recently, with the digital expansion. So I've I've had people say to me, "Why is it?" And I said, "Well, it's the." Land is expensive in Australia, in our capital cities. Well, our cost of living, you know, living expensive. in Sydney is uh, in the top ten in the world. So right? it's just, it's just uh, relative that media is going to be expensive. Well, mm. Okay. So, so part of it is cost of living. The other part is a little bit of fragmentation. You know, we do have quite fragmented populations. Yep. We've got, you know, uh, eastern seaboard. And, but we're the most urbanised country in the planet. Okay. Sunny. Three or four percent are actually living on the land, rural, making money on land. But the density of those, you know, because you yeah. try and compare, say, an LA with a Sydney or a London with a Melbourne, you know, the density, the number of people in a particular area covered either by newspapers or radio or yeah. whatever, it would be quite, you know, to get your accumulative reach yeah. across the whole country would be take quite a lot wouldn't it yes well, it's, it's it's fragmented because of geographies but also um limited because the number of media channels and media set up media in australia is quite expensive mm. the other um the other thing unique or maybe not unique to australia is regional media as well oh yes yes right? and it's been a complaint that a lot of clients have mentioned to me that 
they find it really difficult to get a media agency that gets regional media. What's the challenge? Well, the first challenge is that it's not people sucking on straw and sitting on bars. Hayseeds? Yes. They're in Canberra, Newcastle, Bendigo, Ballarat, Wollongong, the big five cities in Queensland. They are big mini cities, mm. all within uh, you know, 10K of driving into work in the city, living disposable incomes higher. Um, I saw Grant Blackley talk about this, and he's so right because everyone forgets to allocate regional as part of their media plan. Mm. And these people have more money to spend than most Australians. Okay, well, that's interesting because a lot of marketers think of, excuse me, regional as being, you know, sort of the poor cousins of no, the city. There's more, like Darwin and Canberra, the two highest disposable incomes in the country. Mm. Um, some of the other bigger um, regional towns are, are like on par with Sydney and Melbourne disposable income. And the media is cheaper mm. on a cost per thousand basis. So you can buy it and reach 35, 40% of the population cheaper than you can buy Metro. And I think it's a fascination that um, I saw in the in the 90s and in the, in the 2000s when clients getting under budget pressures and they say, oh, well, let's just, just do an Eastern Seaboard buy. Mm. What? Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. What about the rest of the country? Regional New South Wales is the third biggest population centre in Australia mm. after Melbourne and Sydney. So you've got to look at it like that. Queensland is huge. I think um, 48% of people in Queensland live in Brisbane. Yeah. That's the most... Right down in that southeast corner and, of this enormous state. And so you've got to say, you know, Perth and Adelaide are different because of the vastness of the state. You've got to look at it differently and say, hang on, uh, like the Herald Sun in Melbourne is the number one red paper in the country, Victoria, because mm. it's only... It's not far to send yes, the trucks Victoria's out. Yes, Victoria's a relatively yeah, small so state. That's except, but, but you've got to look at it and say, you've got to invest in regional. I think Coles and Woolworths, they spend money in regional. Do, I spent money with car deals in regional. But does regional media itself make it difficult to plan and buy in regional? Or is it really just a lack of understanding of the regional markets that means that marketers struggle to find agencies that really get regional media. I think it's the, the latter. Region, regional has made themselves easier to buy than ever. Okay. So when I first started media, I had to buy 35 regional TV channels, individual channels. Now it's all aggregated, it's easier. You look at Today Network, it's got Today and Triple M around the country. Mm -hmm. So it's easy from that point of view. You don't have to remember call signs of radio stations anymore, 2AY or 3YB or something like that. So you've got, you got media making it absolutely easier. There's no excuse to buy regional. They're trying to help you. Okay, so there's been a criticism leveled at media agencies that in the rationalisation to having fewer senior people and more junior people, that perhaps some of this is that they're either advising or bu uh, planning buying uh, media that they're familiar with and avoiding the media that they're unfamiliar with. And that has two impacts. One would be, unless you've grown up in a country or regional town, you don't really understand it. If you've grown up in the city, you only know the city. Right, And the second is that if you're born 
in the sort of later part of the 20th century and the 21st century, you would definitely be more inclined to want to buy digital channels than you would traditional because you've grown up in an internet world. It's, it's like, a, I think I've seen these charts and says, uh, what the advertising agency listens to and, and what they buy and what the real population is doing. Yes, yeah, I've seen those And too, yeah. it always over-indexes on Metro, Spotify, digital, lower TV, Netflix is high. It's always like how they view the world, not what the client and the real population is doing. I think, I, I think they have to get out and see the world or study a map. Go and buy, or go and look on Wikipedia about regional New South Wales. Look up a town. And that's the real, um, see, the agencies are so under the pump now with people and time, they don't have time to educate. Mm. So you learn a lot off the reps. But that wasn't any different in my day. I, I, there's a radio rep, and I won't mention his name because it'll get embarrassed. He used to come in and educate us on the radio survey mm. every time. And he was good. And he told the whole picture. He didn't Could've, use it as a, just as a sales exercise. He used it to actually inform you. So yeah, you but when you had a problem with radio, you rang him, and nine times out of ten, he got a booking. But yeah. so it was quid pro quo. He mm. educated you about the the, the radio rigs. So they need to get more out of into that. The the agencies need to invite the the various industries in to teach them because mm. it's not that education process going on. They say they're doing it but it's not really real time. Look, it's great to have you uh, as part of the Trinity P3 gang. Um, I'm just wondering, do you have something that you really want to achieve while you're working with us? Um, I think I want to, to um, yeah, impart some of my knowledge I've learned over the client, to your clients and uh, prospects of how you can do things better. And it's about the process. It's not about the end transaction. There's things I've learned, things I've done wrong. Things you learn, you do, you learn from your mistakes. And uh, so I want to impart that knowledge onto the clients. I have to tell you, you know, in the conversations that we've been uh, party to, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, you bring to those conversations of, of, of like a, a multifaceted view of the, the media world. You know, and and that it's not just from an agency perspective. It's not just from an, a media owner or media uh, sales perspective, or even a marketing perspective. But you're looking for the ways to really unearth the value that sits within media. Well, like I like to call my, myself an advertising person. I've been a marketer. I'm proud of that. I think you've just got to find out what do people want. Like we're in a meeting with a client, say so you, you have to tell us what you want. What's your brief? You're going to find out that from the media owner, from the, your, your own agency. What do you want to do? Mm. What do you want to do as a client? Yeah. And uh, it, once you work that out, you can say, okay, I can go there because he needs that and he'll do that for me and I'll. And that's right for the client and that's mm. what they need. You can start to triangulate everything for success. Mm. So do you feel like a poacher turned gamekeeper? No, not at all. Some of my friends have rung me and said, oh, you're going to get stuck in the agencies. Like, not all agencies are bad. Some people, um, not all clients, are good either. Yeah. Um, so it's just about clarity and making sure everyone understands each other. 
right. Well, look, you know, we've run out of time, but thanks for uh, thanks. sitting down. Uh, I think they've almost finished playing uh, billiards in the background. Uh, just one last question, because uh, I know uh, Virginia Highland recently had a joke with me about uh, a brown paper bag full of money. So have you ever had a uh, brown paper bag full of money put on your desk? Mm-hmm.